Kate here, Saints. You're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. The Large Catechism of Dr. Martin Luther, Part 1, Paragraphs 78 through 178. The Third Commandment, You Shall Sanctify the Holy Day. The word holiday is used for the Hebrew word Sabbath, which properly means to rest, that is, to cease from labor. Therefore, we usually say to stop working or sanctify the Sabbath. Now in the Old Testament, God set apart the seventh day and appointed it for rest. He commanded it should be regarded as holy above all other days. This commandment was given only to the Jewish people for this outward obedience, that they should stop toilsome work and rest. In that way, both man and beast might recover and not be weakened by endless labor. Later, the Jewish people restricted the Sabbath too closely and greatly abused it. They defamed Christ and could not endure in him the same works that they themselves would do on that day, as we read in the Gospel. They acted as though the commandment were fulfilled by doing no manual work whatsoever. This, however, was not the meaning. But as we shall hear, they were supposed to sanctify the holy day, or day of rest. This commandment, therefore, in its literal sense, does not apply to us Christians. It is entirely an outward matter, like other ordinances in the Old Testament. The ordinances were attached to particular customs, persons, times, and places, but now they have been made matters of freedom through Christ. The simple-minded need to grasp a Christian meaning about what God requires in this commandment. Note that we don't keep holy days for the sake of intelligent and learned Christian. They have no need of holy days. We keep them, first of all, for bodily causes and necessities which nature teaches and requires. We keep them for the common people, manservants and maidservants, who have been attending to their work and trade the whole week. In this way they may withdraw in order to rest for a day and be refreshed. Second, and most especially, on this day of rest, since we can get no other chance, we have the freedom and time to attend divine service. We come together to hear and use God's word, and then to praise God, to sing, and to pray. However, this keeping of the Sabbath, I point out, is not restricted to a certain time as with the Jewish people. It does not have to be just on this day or that day, for in itself no one day is better than another. Instead, this should be done daily. However, since the masses of people cannot attend every day, there must be at least one day in the week set apart. From ancient times, Sunday, the Lord's Day, has been appointed for this purpose. So we also should continue to do the same, in order that everything may be done in an orderly way, and no one may create disorder by starting unnecessary practices. This is the simple meaning of the commandment, people must have holy days. Therefore, such observances should be devoted to hearing God's word so that the special function of this day of rest should be the ministry of the word for the young and the mass of poor people.
Yet the resting should not be strictly understood to forbid any work that comes up, which cannot be avoided. So when someone asks you what is meant by the commandment, you shall sanctify the holy day, answer like this. To sanctify the holy day is the same as to keep it holy. But what is meant by keeping it holy? Nothing else than to be occupied with holy words, works, and life. For the day needs no sanctification for itself. It has been created holy in itself, but God desires the day to be holy to you. Therefore, it becomes holy or unholy because of you, whether you are occupied on that day with things that are holy or unholy. How then does such sanctification take place? Not like this, sitting behind the stove and doing no rough work or adorning ourselves with a wreath and putting on our best clothes, but as said above, we occupy ourselves with God's word and exercise ourselves in the word. Indeed, we Christians ought always to keep such a holy day and be occupied with nothing but holy things. This means that we should be daily engaged with God's word and carried in our hearts and upon our lips. But as said above, since we do not always have free time, we must devote several hours a week for the sake of the young, or at least a day for the sake of the entire multitude, to being concerned about this alone. We must especially teach the use of the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and so direct our whole life and being according to God's Word. At whatever time, then, this is being observed and practiced, there a true holy day is being kept. Other things shall not be called a Christian's holy day, for indeed, non-Christians can also stop working and be idle, just as the entire swarm of our church workers do. They stand daily in the churches singing and ringing bells, but they do not keep a holy day in true holiness, because they do not preach or use God's word, but teach and live contrary to it. God's word is the true holy thing above all holy things. Yes, it is the only one we Christians know and have. Though we have had the bones of all the saints or all holy consecrated garments upon a heap, still that would not help us all. All that stuff is a dead thing that can sanctify no one. But God's word is the treasure that sanctifies everything. By the word, even all the saints themselves were sanctified. Wherever God's word is taught, preached, heard, read, or meditated upon, then the person, day, and work are sanctified. This is not because of the outward work, but because of the word, which makes saints of us all. Therefore, I constantly say that all our life and work must be guided by God's word, if it is to be God-pleasing or holy. Where this is done, this commandment is in force and being fulfilled. On the contrary, any observance or work that is practiced without God's word is unholy before God. This is true no matter how brilliantly a work may shine, even though it is covered with relics such as the fictitious spiritual orders, which know nothing about God's work and seek holiness in their own works. Note, therefore, that the force and power of this commandment lies not in the resting, but in the sanctifying, so that a special holy exercise belongs to this day. For other works and occupations are not properly called holy exercises, unless the person is holy first. But here a work is to be done by which a person is himself made holy. This is done, as we have heard, only through God's word. For this reason, particular places, times, persons, and the entire outward order of worship have been created and appointed, so that there may be order in public practice. So much depends on God's word. Without it, no holy day can be sanctified. Therefore, we must know that God insists upon a strict observance of this commandment and will punish all who despise his word, 
and are not willing to hear and learn it, especially at the time appointed for the purpose. It is not only the people who greatly misuse and desecrate the holy day who sin against this commandment. Those who neglect to hear God's word because of their greed or frivolity or lie in taverns and are dead drunk like swine. But even that other crowd sins. They listen to God's word like it was any other trifle and only come to preaching because of custom. They go away again, and at the end of the year, they know as little of God's word as at the beginning. Up to this point, the opinion prevailed that you had properly hallowed Sunday when you had heard a mass or the gospel read, but no one cared for God's word and no one taught it. Now that we have God's word, we fail to correct the abuse. We allow ourselves to be preached to and admonished, but we do not listen seriously and carefully. Know, therefore, that you must be concerned not only about hearing, but also about learning and retaining God's word in memory. Do not think that this is optional for you or of no great importance. Think that it is God's commandment who will require an account from you about how you have heard, learned, and honored his word. Likewise, those fussy spirits are to be rebuked who, after they have heard a sermon or two, find hearing more sermons to be tedious and dull. They think that they know all that well enough and need no more instruction, for that is exactly the sin that was previously counted among mortal sins and is called Acadia, namely apathy or satisfaction. This is a malignant, dangerous plague, with which the devil bewitches and deceives the hearts of many so that he may surprise us and secretly take God's word from us. Let me tell you this, even though you know God's word perfectly and are already a master in all things, you are daily in the devil's kingdom. He ceases neither day nor night to sneak up upon you and kindle in your heart unbelief and wicked thoughts against these three commandments and all the commandments. Therefore, you must always have God's word in your heart, upon your lips, and in your ears. But where the heart is idle and the word does not make a sound, the devil breaks in and has done the damage before we are aware. On the other hand, the word is so effective that whenever it is seriously contemplated, heard, and used, it is bound never to be without fruit. It always awakens new understanding, pleasure, and devoutness, and produces a pure heart and pure thoughts. For these words are not lazy or dead, but are creative, living words. And even though no other interest or necessity moves us, this truth ought to urge everyone to the word, because thereby the devil is put to flight and driven away. Besides this commandment is fulfilled and this exercise in the word is more pleasing to God than any other work of hypocrisy, however brilliant. The Fourth Commandment So far we have learned the first three commandments which relate to God. With our whole heart we trust in Him and fear and love Him through all our lives. We do not misuse His holy name in support of falsehood or any bad work, but we use it to praise God and for the profit and salvation of our neighbor and ourselves. On holy days and when at rest we diligently use and encourage the use of God's word, so that our actions and our entire life are guided by it. Now follow the other seven commandments which relate to our neighbor. Among them is the first and greatest. You shall honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you, and you may live long upon the earth. To the position of fatherhood and motherhood, God has given special distinction above all positions that are beneath it. He does not simply command us to love our parents, but to honor them. Regarding our brothers, sisters, and neighbors in general, he commands nothing more than that we love them, 
In this way, he separates and distinguishes father and mother from all other persons upon earth and places them at his side. For it is a far higher thing to honor someone than to love someone, because honor includes not only love but also modesty, humility, and submission to a majesty hidden in them. Honor requires not only that the parents be addressed kindly and with reverence, but also that, both in the heart and with the body, we demonstrate that we value them very highly, and that, next to God, we regard them as the very highest. For someone we honor from the heart, we must also truly regard as high and great. We must, therefore, impress this truth upon the young, that they should think of their parents as standing in God's place. They should remember that, however lowly, poor, frail, and strange their parents may be, nevertheless they are the father and the mother given to them by God. Parents are not to be deprived of their honor because of their conduct or their failings. Therefore, we are not to consider who they are or how they may be, but the will of God, who has created and ordained parenthood. In other respects, people are, indeed, all equal in God's eyes. But among humans, there must necessarily be this inequality and ordered difference. Therefore, God commands this order to be kept, that you obey me as your father, and that I have the supremacy. Learn, therefore, what is the honor toward parents that this commandment requires. A. They must be held in distinction and esteem above all things as the most precious treasure on earth. B. In our words, we must speak modestly toward them. Do not address them roughly, haughtily, and defiantly, but yield to them and be silent even though they go too far. C. We must show them such honor also by works, that is, with our body and possessions. We must serve them, help them, and provide for them when they are old, sick, infirm, or poor. We must do this all not only gladly, but with humility and reverence, as doing it before God. For the child who knows how to regard parents in his heart will not allow them to do without hunger, but will place them above him and at his side and will share with them whatever he has and possesses. Second, Notice how great, good, and holy a work is assigned to children here. Unfortunately, this is utterly neglected and disregarded. No one notices that God has commanded it, or that it is a holy divine word and doctrine. For if it had been regarded as holy, everyone could have concluded that those who live according to these words must be holy people. There would have been no need to invent monasticism or spiritual orders. Every child would have abided by this commandment and could have directed his conscience to God and said, If I am to do good and holy works, I know of none better than to give all honor and obedience to my parents, because God himself has commanded it. For what God commands must be much better and far nobler than everything that we may come up with ourselves. Since there is no higher or better teacher to be found than God, there can certainly be no better teaching than what he provides. Now, he teaches faithfully what we should do if we wish to perform truly good works. By commanding such works, he shows that they please him. If, then, it is God who commands this and does not know how to appoint anything better, I will never improve upon it. Behold, in this way, we would have had a godly child properly taught, reared in true blessedness, and kept at home in obedience to his parents and in their service people would have had blessing and joy seeing this. 
However, God's commandment was not permitted to be commended with such care and diligence. It had to be neglected and trampled underfoot so that a child could not take it to heart. Meanwhile, the child would gape like a panting wolf at the things we set up without once consulting or giving reverence to God. For God's sake, let us learn this at last, placing all other things out of sight. Let our youths look first to this commandment if they wish to serve God with truly good works. Then they may do what is pleasing to their fathers and mothers, or to those to whom they may be subject instead of parents. For every child that knows and does this has, in the first place, this great consolation in his heart. He can joyfully say and boast in spite of and against all who are occupied with works of their own choice. Behold, this work is well-pleasing to my God in heaven, that I know for certain. Let them all come together with their many great distressing and difficult works and make their boast. We will see whether they can show one work that is greater and nobler than obedience to father and mother. For to parents God has appointed and commanded obedience next to his own majesty. For if God's word and will are in force and being accomplished, nothing shall be valued higher than the will and word of parents, as long as that, too, is subordinated to obedience toward God and is not opposed to the preceding commandments. Therefore you should be heartily glad and thank God that he has chosen you and made you worthy to do a work so precious and pleasing to him. Only note this, although this work is regarded as the most humble and despised, Consider it great and precious. Do this not because of the worthiness of parents, but because this work is included in and controlled by the jewel and sanctuary, namely, the word and commandment of God. Oh, what a high price all Carthusians, monks, and nuns would pay if in all their religious activities they could bring into God's presence a single work done by virtue of his commandment, and if they were able to say with joyful heart before his face, Now I know that this work is well-pleasing to you. Where will these poor wretched persons hide when, in the sight of God, and all the world, they shall blush with shame before a young child who has lived according to this commandment? Will they not have to confess that with their whole life that they are not worthy to give that child a drink of water? It serves them right, because of their devilish perversion in treading God's commandment underfoot. They must vainly torment themselves with works of their own making, and, in addition, have scorn and loss for their reward. Should not the heart then leap and melt for joy when going to work and doing what is commanded, saying, Look, this is better than all the holiness of the Carthusians, even though they kill themselves fasting and praying upon their knees without ceasing. For here you have a sure text and a divine testimony that God has commanded this. But concerning the holiness of Carthusians, he did not command a word. This is the plight and miserable blindness of the world. No one believes these things. The devil has deceived us to such an extent with false holiness and the glamour of our own works. I would be very glad, I say it again, if people would open their eyes and ears and take this to heart, lest some day we should again be led astray from God's pure word to the devil's lying vanities. If people would take this to heart, all would be well. For parents would have more joy, love, friendship, and unity in their houses. The children could captivate their parents' hearts. On the other hand, when children are stubborn and will not do what they are taught until a rod is laid upon their back, they anger both God and their parents. In this way, they deprive themselves of this treasure and joy of conscience, as they lay up for themselves only misfortune. 
As everyone complains, the course of the world now is such that both young and old completely lack restraint and are beyond control. They have no reverence or sense of honor. They do nothing unless they are driven to it by blows, and they do what wrong and slander they can behind each other's backs. Therefore, God also punishes them, so that they sink into all kinds of filth and misery. As a rule, the parents, too, themselves are stupid and ignorant. One fool trains another. As the foolish parents have lived, so live their children after them. This, now, I say, should be the first and most important consideration that urges us to keep this commandment. Because of this, even if we had no father and mother, we would wish that God would set up wood and stone before us, so that we might call them father and mother. Since he has given us living parents, how much more should we rejoice to show them honor and obedience? For we know it is so highly pleasing to the divine majesty and to all angels, and it harasses all devils. Besides, this is the highest work we can do, after the grand divine worship included in the previous commandments. Giving to the poor and every other good work toward our neighbor is not equal to this. For God has assigned parenthood the highest place. Yes, he has set it up in his own place upon the earth. God's will and pleasure ought to be enough reason and incentive for us to do what we can with good will and pleasure. Besides this, it is our duty before the world to be grateful for benefits and every good that we have from our parents. But here again the devil rules in the world, so that the children forget their parents. We all forget God, and no one considers how God nourishes, protects, and defends us, and how he bestows so much good on body and soul. This is especially true when an evil time comes. We grow angry and grumble with impatience, and all the good that we have received throughout our life is wiped out of our memory. We act the same way toward our parents, and there is no child that understands and considers what the parents have endured while nourishing and fostering him, unless the Holy Spirit grants him this grace. God knows very well this perverseness of the world. Therefore, he admonishes and urges us by commandments that everyone consider what his parents have done for him. Each child will discover that he has from them a body and life. He has been fed and reared when otherwise he would have perished a hundred times in his own filth. Therefore, this is a true and good saying of old and wise people. To God, to parents and to teachers, we can never offer enough thanks and compensation. The person who thinks about and considers this will give honor to his parents without force and bear them up on his hands as those through whom God has done him all good. Over and above this, another great reason that should move us more to obey this commandment is that God attaches to it a temporal promise, that your days may be long in the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. From this you can see for yourself how serious God is about this commandment. He not only declares that it is well-pleasing to him and that he has joy and delight in it, but he also declares that it shall prosper us and promote our highest good, so that we may have a pleasant and agreeable life furnished with every good thing. Therefore, St. Paul also greatly emphasizes the same promise and rejoices in it when he says that this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Although the rest of the commandments have promises in them, none is so plainly and clearly stated. Here, then, you have learned the fruit and the reward, that whoever keeps this commandment shall have happy days, 
fortune, and prosperity. On the other hand, you have also learned the punishment that whoever is disobedient shall perish sooner and never enjoy life. For to have long life in the sense of the scriptures is not only to become old, but to have everything that belongs to long life, health, wife, children, livelihood, peace, good government, and so on. Without these things, this life can neither be enjoyed in cheerfulness nor long endure. If, therefore, you will not obey father and mother and submit to their discipline, then obey the hangman. If you will not obey him, then submit to the skeleton man, namely death. For God will insist on this in some. If you obey him, offering love and service, he will reward you abundantly with all good. If you offend him, he will send upon you both death and the hangman. Where do so many rogues come from that must be daily hanged, beheaded, and broken upon the wheel? Don't they come from disobedience to parents, because they will not submit to discipline and kindness? By God's punishment they cause us to behold their misfortune and grief, for it seldom happens that such perverse people die a natural or timely death. But the godly and obedient have this blessing. They live long in pleasant quietness and see their children's children, as said above to the third and fourth generation. Experience teaches that where there are honorable old families who do well and have many children, they certainly owe their origin to the fact that some of them were brought up well and were full of regard for their parents. On the other hand, it is written of the wicked, may his posterity be cut off, may his name be blotted out in the second generation. Therefore note well how great a thing in God's sight obedience is. He values it so highly, is so highly pleased with it, and rewards it richly. He also enforces punishment rigorously on those who act against it. All this I say that it may be well impressed upon the young. No one believes how necessary this commandment is, although it had not been valued and taught under the papacy up to this point. These are simple and easy words, and everybody thought he knew them. Therefore, people pass by them lightly, crave other things, and do not see and believe that God is so greatly offended if these words are disregarded. They don't see that a person does a work so well-pleasing and precious if he follows them. In this commandment belongs a further statement about all kinds of obedience to persons in authority who have to command and to govern. For all authority flows and is born from the authority of parents. Where a father is unable alone to educate his rebellious and irritable child, he uses a schoolmaster to teach the child. If he is too weak, he gets the help of his friends and neighbors. If he departs this life, he delegates and confers his authority and government upon others who are appointed for the purpose. Likewise, a father must have domestic manservants and maidservants under himself for the management of the household. So all whom we call masters are in the place of parents, and must get their power and authority to govern from them. So also men are called fathers in the scriptures, who in their government perform the functions of a father, and have a paternal heart toward their subordinates. From antiquity the Romans and other nations called the masters and mistresses of the household house-fathers and house-mothers. They called their national rulers and overlords fathers of the entire country. This is a great shame to us who would be Christians, because we do not give them the same title, or at least do not value and honor them as fathers. Now, the honor a child owes to a father and mother is owed by all who are included in the household. 
Therefore, manservants and maidservants should be careful to be obedient to their masters and mistresses. They should also honor them as their own fathers and mothers and do everything they know is expected of them, not forced and unwillingly, but with pleasure and joy because of what I mentioned. It is God's command and is pleasing to him above all other works. They ought to pay for the privilege and be glad that they get masters and mistresses so that they may have such joyful consciences and know how they may do truly golden works. This is a matter that has been neglected and despised till now. Instead, everybody ran, in the devil's name, into convents or to pilgrimages and indulgences, with loss of time and money and with an evil conscience. If this truth, then, could be impressed upon the poor people, a servant girl would leap and praise and thank God. With her tidy work, for which she received support and wages, she would gain such a treasure of good works. It would be unlike all those gained by people regarded by saints. Is it not an excellent boast to know and say that if you perform your daily domestic task, this is better than all the sanctity and ascetic life of monks? You have the promise, in addition, that you shall prosper in all good and farewell. How can you lead a more blessed or holier life as far as your works are concerned? In God's sight, faith is what really makes a person holy and serves him alone, but the works are for the service of people. There you have everything good, protection and defense in the Lord, a joyful conscience, and a gracious God besides. He will reward you a hundredfold, so that you are like a knight if you are only pious and obedient. But if you are not, you have, in the first place, nothing but God's wrath and displeasure, no peace of heart, and afterward all kinds of plagues and misfortunes. Whoever will not be moved by this and lean toward godliness, we hand over to the hangman and to the skeleton man. Therefore, let everyone who allows himself to be advised remember that God is not joking. Know that it is God who speaks with you and demands obedience. If you obey him, you are his dear child. But if you despise obedience, then take shame, misery, and grief for your reward. The same should be said also about obedience to civil government. This, as we have said, is included in the place of fatherhood and extends farthest of all relations. Here, father is not one person from a single family, but it means the many people of the father as tenants, citizens, or subjects. Through them, as through our parents, God gives to us food, house, and home, protection, and security. They bear such name and title with all honor as their highest dignity that it is our duty to honor them and to value them greatly as the dearest treasure and the most precious jewel upon earth. The person who is obedient in this is willing and ready to serve. He cheerfully does all that deals with honor. He knows that he is pleasing God and that he will receive joy and happiness for his reward. If he will not do this in love, but despises and resists authority or rebels, let him also know that he shall have no favor or blessing. Where he thinks he will gain a florin, he will lose ten times as much elsewhere. Or he will become a victim to the hangman, perish by war, pestilence, or famine. He will experience no good in his children and be obliged to suffer injury, injustice, and violence at the hands of his servants, neighbors, or strangers and tyrants. For what we seek and deserve is paid back and comes home to us. If we would ever allow ourselves to be persuaded that such works are pleasing to God, 
and to have so rich a reward, we would be completely established in abundant possession and have what our heart desires. But because God's word and command are so lightly esteemed, as though some peddler had spoken it, let us see whether you are the person to oppose him. How difficult, do you think, will it be for God to pay you back? You would certainly live much better with divine favor, peace, and happiness than with his displeasure and misfortune. Why do you think the world is now so full of unfaithfulness, disgrace, calamity, and murder? It is because everyone desires to be his own master and free from the emperor, or to care nothing for anyone and do what pleases him. Therefore God punishes one knave by another, so that when you defraud and despise your master, another comes and deals in the same way with you. Yes, in your household you must suffer ten times more from wife, children, or servants. We feel our misfortune, we murmur and complain of unfaithfulness, violence, and injustice, but we refuse to see that we ourselves are knaves who have fully deserved this punishment. And even by this we are not reformed. We will have no favor and happiness. Therefore, it is only fair that we have nothing but misfortune without mercy. There must still be somewhere upon earth some godly people because God continues to grant us so much good. On our own account, we should not have a farthing in the new house nor straw in the field. All this I have been obliged to urge with so many words in the hope that someone may take it to heart. Then we may be relieved of the blindness and misery in which we are stuck so deeply. Then we may truly understand God's word and will and seriously accept it. We would learn how we could have joy, happiness, and salvation enough, both now and eternally. So we have two kinds of fathers presented in this commandment, fathers in blood and fathers in office, or those who have the care of the family and those who have the care of the country. Besides these, there are still spiritual fathers. These are not like those in the papacy who have had themselves called fathers, but have performed no function of the fatherly office. For the only ones called spiritual fathers are those who govern and guide us by God's word. In this sense, St. Paul boasts his fatherhood in 1 Corinthians 4, where he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, since they are fathers, they are entitled to their honor, even above all others. But to spiritual fathers, the least amount of honor is bestowed. The way the world knows for honoring them is to drive them out of the country and to begrudge them a piece of bread. In short, spiritual fathers must be, as St. Paul says, like the filth of the world and everybody's refuse and foot rag. Yet there is need that this truth about spiritual fatherhood also be taught to the people. For those who want to be Christians are obliged in God's sight to think them worthy of double honor who minister to their souls. They are obligated to deal well with them and provide for them. For that reason, God is willing to bless you enough and will not let you run out. But in this manner, everyone refuses to be generous and resists. All are afraid that they will perish from bodily needs and cannot now support one respectable preacher, where formerly they filled ten potbellies. Because of this, we also deserve for God to deprive us of his word and blessing and to allow preachers of lies to arise again and lead us to the devil. In addition, they will drain our sweat and blood. But those who keep God's will and commandment in sight have this promise. Everything they give to temporal and spiritual fathers, and whatever they do to honor them, shall be richly repaid to them. They will not have bread, clothing, and money for a year or two, but will have long life, support, and peace.
they shall be eternally rich and blessed. So, just do what is your duty. Let God manage how he will support you and provide enough for you. Since he has promised it and has never yet lied, he will not be found lying to you. This ought to encourage us and give us hearts that would melt in pleasure and love for those to whom we owe honor. We ought to raise our hands and joyfully thank God who has given us such promises. For such promises we ought to run to the ends of the world, to the remotest parts of India. For although the whole world should work together, it could not add an hour to our life or give us a single grain from the earth. But God wishes to give you everything exceedingly and abundantly according to your heart's desire. He who despises and casts this promise to the winds is not worthy ever to hear a word about God. More than enough has now been stated for all who belong under this commandment. In addition, it would be well to preach to the parents also, and to those who bear their office. Tell them how they should behave toward those who are given to them for their governance. This is not stated in the Ten Commandments, but it is still abundantly commanded in many places in the Scripture. God wants to have this included in this commandment when he speaks of father and mother. He does not wish to have rogues and tyrants in this office and government. He does not assign this honor to them, that is, power and authority to govern, so that they can have themselves worshipped, but they should consider that they are obligated to obey God. First of all, they should seriously and faithfully fulfill their office, not only to support and provide for the bodily necessities of their children, servants, subjects, and so on, but most of all, they should train them to honor and praise God. Therefore, do not think that this matter is left to your pleasure and arbitrary will. This is God's strict command and order, to whom also you must give account for it. Here again the sad plight arises that no one sees or hears this truth. All live on as though God gave us children for our pleasure or amusement and servants so that we could use them like a cow or an ass only for work. Or they live as though we were only to gratify our lewd behavior with our subjects, ignoring them as though we have no concern for what they learn or how they live. No one is willing to see that this is the command of the Supreme Majesty, who will most strictly call us to account and punish us for it. Nor does anyone see that there is so much need to be seriously concerned about the young. For if we wish to have excellent and able persons for both civil and church leadership, we must spare no diligence, time, or cost in teaching and educating our children, so that they may serve God and the world. We must not think only about how we may amass money and possessions for them. God can, indeed, support and make them rich without us, as he daily does, but for this purpose he has given us children and issued this command. We should train and govern them according to his will. Otherwise, he would have no purpose for a father and a mother. Therefore, let us know that it is his duty, on peril of losing the divine favor, to bring up his children in the fear and knowledge of God above all things. And if the children are talented, have them learn and study something. Then they may be hired for whatever need there is. If that were done, God would also richly bless us and give us grace to train men by whom land and people might be improved. He would also bless us with well-educated citizens, chaste and domestic wives, who afterward would raise godly children and servants. Here consider now 
what deadly harm you are doing if you are negligent and fail on your part to bring up your children to usefulness and piety. Consider how you bring upon yourself all sin and wrath, earning hell by your own children, even though you are otherwise pious and holy. Because this matter is disregarded, God so fearfully punishes the world that there is no discipline, government, or peace. We all complain about this, but do not see that it is our fault. The way we train children and subjects spoils them and makes them disobedient. Let this be enough encouragement. Draw this out further. Belongs to another time. Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.